Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I will be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1976. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1976, the popular film, Rocky, was released. It was written by Sylvester Stallone, who also starred as the main character, Rocky Balboa. The movie earned over $200 million at the box office and also won Best Picture, Best Directing, and Best Film Editing at the Academy Awards. That same year, during the Winter Olympics, ice dancing was debuted as an event. Also during that Olympics, the first successful backflip in figure skating was accomplished by Terry Kubica of the United States. Another thing that happened in 1976 was the San Antonio street murder that repeated itself 10 years later. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. San Antonio, Texas, home of the Alamo, is the most visited city in Texas. It is the birthplace of Church's Chicken, as the third largest zoo and is home to the oldest church in Texas, dating back to 1738. Today, however, we will be discussing some history of San Antonio that is tragic and sadly repeated itself. In the early morning hours of September 5, 1976, 25-year-old Austin Hazel was hanging out on the 400 block of Seguin Street in San Antonio. He was with three friends when a man, 21-year-old Vernon Seddywhite, approached the group and demanded their money. In the course of this robbery, Vernon shot Austin in the neck and grabbed a woman from their group, forcing her into his car and they sped away. Thankfully, the girl was found later unharmed. But Austin was found by police around 2.45 a.m., sprawled out on the pavement with a gunshot wound to the neck. He was transferred to Brook Army Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead at 4.20 a.m. Vernon Saddywhite ended up turning himself in and was charged in the murder. He was sentenced to five years in prison. I could not find the reason for the light sentence. The little I know about his childhood leads me to hypothesize his past struggles played a part in his sentencing. He was a 10th grade dropout. Both his parents were dead and he and his seven siblings were being raised by his aunt Beatrice. He was let out after a few years. Ten years later, and only ten minutes from his first murder, Vernon would repeat his brutal actions and take another life. Sandra Sorrell, 23 
was a mother of two, living in San Antonio, attending a local nursing school in June 1986. She was also dating a new guy she had met at the school, which was exciting because she had just gotten out of an abusive relationship with her live-in boyfriend, Vernon Saddywhite. For the past month, she had been complaining to authorities, but no action had been taken yet. June 9, 1986. Vernon called Sandra, saying she owed him money. She didn't want to go alone, so she asked her new boyfriend, Wellington Mingo, to come with her to the apartment she once shared with Vernon to return the money. While Mingo waited outside in the car, Sandra walked up to the door. After a few minutes, Mingo saw something out of the corner of his eye. When he looked up, he saw that Vernon had his arm around Sandra's neck and was holding a 12-gauge shotgun to her head. Vernon demanded that Mingo leave or he would blow her brains out. Shocked and afraid, Mingo obeyed and left the area. Called the police, and after about 10 minutes, he drove to Sandra's mother's house and explained what had just happened. Her mother, Lillian Fields, then proceeded to call the police. Sandra was able to calm Vernon down and get herself out of this tragic situation, only to have it happen again four days later on June 14th. Mingo went again with Sandra to Vernon's apartment to pick up some clean clothes for her and her children. As if deja vu, the same incident occurred, with Vernon putting his arm around Sandra's neck while holding the 12-gauge shotgun to her head and told Mingo to leave or he would blow her brains out. Sandra, again, was able to get out of this horrible situation. Sadly, on June 19th, 1986, Sandra would not make it out of this situation a third time. 911, what's the state of your emergency? They were still moving. He was moving with her, and uh, he stopped for a moment. She was struggling, and then he was kind of hunched over with her, and then he he raised her up, arched his back, and then there were two shots in uh, rapid succession. Uh, I guess maybe just a second apart? On the morning of June 19th, Sandra, Mingo, and another friend, Gary Harris, got off at a bus stop on Main Street, walking toward American Careers at Heritage Plaza, their nursing aid school. As the three neared the school, they were approached by Vernon, who said he wanted to talk to Sandra. He grabbed her, again put his arm around her neck, and pulled out a twenty-two caliber revolver and put it to her head. At this time, Mingo turned to his friend Gary and told him to go call the police. When he turned back around, he saw Vernon dragging Sandra away, still in the headlock. Mingo followed, but lost sight of them when he stopped to tell a parking lot attendant to call for help. He was able to catch up to them again. They were now two blocks from where the encounter started, in a parking lot by Dwyer Avenue, when Mingo pleaded with Vernon to let Sandra go. Mingo said, Let her go. 
If you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. If you want to fight about it, let's fight about it. There's no sense in doing this. Still holding her in the headlock, Vernon looked at Mingo and said, If I can't have her, ain't nobody else gonna have her. During the course of this confrontation, another man attempted to approach the scene to help, but stopped short when Vernon pointed the gun at him and said, Stay where you are, or I'll shoot you too. Then Vernon jerked Sandra off the ground and shot her twice in the head. She died instantly. Vernon then placed her on the ground, knelt down next to her, checked her for a pulse, tore his shirt off, and then placed the gun twice to his own head before finally fleeing the scene. He ran toward the San Antonio River, more commonly known as the Riverwalk. As the police started arriving, the officers observed Sandra, shot and bleeding, while being held by Mingo. They then took off in the direction Vernon went. They caught up to him on the east bank of the river, finding him standing in some bushes. They witnessed several times him trying to take his own life with the gun, but was unsuccessful after 14 tries, and so he gave himself up. Later, after the gun was examined, it showed the 22 caliber revolver had two spent cartridges and one live cartridge found inside the gun. It was also observed that the live cartridge was struck at least 14 times by the firing pin, but did not go off. He walked out of the bushes with his hands up, complied when officers told him to lay on the ground. As he was being handcuffed and searched, he kept repeating the question, Where's my baby? Where's my baby? While looking disturbed. Later at the police station, Vernon appeared to be emotionally upset and crying and asked officers, I hope she's not dead. Is she all right? At trial, Vernon's brother-in-law, John Brown, testified that the gun Vernon used was his had purchased it in January 1986. Vernon had come to visit him June 18th, one day before the murder, and at some point, Brown discovered the gun was missing. Many who witnessed the murder also testified at the trial. Steve Tillotson, whom is the 911 call I relayed earlier, testified that he was at work in his office in Heritage Plaza on the morning of the shooting. He noticed a couple walking by his window and thought it was unusual the way they were walking. His first impression was that they were just having some fun. But then he noticed a friend of his in the parking lot and that his friend's behavior was erratic. Tillotson said he knew something must be going on for him to behave that way. He moved closer to the window to have a better view of the activity outside. He witnessed a man had a woman in a headlock, and she appeared to be struggling. His free arm was held up high. It was at this time, as he watched the couple, Tillotson dialed the emergency number for the police. The man continued his hold 
and carried the woman to the corner and laid her down on the sidewalk. He knelt down for a few seconds and then stood up and looked in the direction of the people that were in the parking lot. At this point, Tittleson saw the gun in the man's hand. He had it pointed directly at his own head. He lowered the gun, knelt beside the woman, and tore his shirt off fairly roughly. He then stood up and pointed the gun to his head again, looked around some more, and walked slowly across the street, and began running through a parking lot to the other side of the river. Once the police arrived, Tillotson approached the police, gave them his name, and later accompanied them to the police station. Joe Castillo, director of the Bear County Mediation Center, testified he was on his way to work in the Heritage Plaza building on the morning of the offense. He was parking his car in the lot next to the building when he heard people yelling. He got out of his car and looked around the corner to see what was creating the noise. He saw the woman struggling to get away from the man and heard her protest. Castillo stated he saw the man exhibit the gun to the crowd and subsequently kill the woman. He then tore his clothing and at one point put the gun to his own head. Castillo and another man then followed him so they could see where he was going. Shortly thereafter, the police arrived. The defense called no witnesses, and the case was given to the jury. After 23 hours, the jury found Vernon Sadie White guilty of capital murder. During the punishment phase, evidence was introduced by the state of Sadie White's previous arrest, which included the murder in 1976. San Antonio police officers Harold Scott and Roger W. McGeehee testified they were familiar with the character and reputation of Vernon. Scott characterized him as a dangerous person and a bad dude to mess with. McGee's opinion was that Vernon's reputation for being a peaceful and law-abiding citizen was bad. Testifying about his mental behavior was Lydia Mesquite, a social worker in the mental health unit at the Bear County Jail. She testified that upon his arrival at the county jail, she found Vernon to be quite hysterical, lying underneath his bunk, and he was saying, Where's my baby? But she was unable to get any information from him. A physician assistant at the Bear County Jail, Elias L. Roach, testified he observed Vernon rolling about on the floor, sobbing. Roach also had noted in his records that there was a high suicide potential for him. Dr. Cesar A. Garcia, M.D., a psychiatrist who treats patients in the Bear County Jail, evaluated Vernon. Garcia testified that Vernon was tearful and had said, I killed my wife. I, I don't remember. But that the next day he examined him and found him much calmer. He further noted that Vernon exhibited several of the criteria for an antisocial personality disorder, that is, personality problems to the point that he was dysfunctional. Vernon claimed to have been suffering from blackouts and hearing voices. Over the previous three or four months, and claimed previous suicide attempts. 
Lillian Fields, Sanders' mother, testified about a letter she had received from Vernon. This letter was viewed by the jury. In the letter, he told Lillian how sorry he was and that he had loved Sandra. Lillian testified that she regarded the letter as an insult. For the defense, two of Vernon's sisters, Betty Jean Citywhite and Joyce Jackson, testified that their parents were both dead. And his aunt Beatrice told the jury she had raised Vernon and his seven brothers and sisters. All three asked the jury to spare his life. Wendell Dickerson, a psychologist, was chief mental health officer for the Texas Department of Corrections for over four years. He testified to the various factors in predicting whether an individual would commit acts of future violence and expressed his own reservations and how punishment is assessed in capital cases in general. After that, the jury went to deliberate on Vernon's fate. He was sentenced to death. In 1976, Vernon took the life of a 25-year-old man. In 1986, he took the life of a 23-year-old female. And in 1995, he was executed for his crimes on August 15th. Before his execution, Lillian Fields was quoted as saying, I just want an end to this so that I know he's dead and he'll never hurt anyone else like my daughter, her children, and myself. Vernon made this brief final statement. I just hope Miss Fields is happy now. Then he turned his head towards the witnesses and said, I want to thank my lawyer Nancy for being on my case and for being here with me now. He was pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. After this, Lillian expressed, I'm very happy. I am. It's over. Me and the kids can go on with our lives. I want to say a huge thank you to Bear County Court Records, AP News, Murderpedia, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a female murderer from the year 1977. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. Oh, 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 oh